Welcome to For the Record, behind-the-scenes insider podcast with Colin McCall, where we take a forward-facing look at your environmental requirements and help you make your EHS program an indispensable and strategic part of your company's growth. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter. And now, here's your host, Colin McCall. All right, welcome back, everybody, to the podcast. It is August 23rd, 2022. I mentioned that date specifically in this particular episode because that feels like a very good time to have a annual budget conversation. We know there's a number of companies out there that are currently in the budget planning process for next year. So I have along with me today, Amy Marshall, frequent guest, All Fours Air Practice Director, and Heather Brinkerhoff. Heather, welcome. Heather's our EHS Practice Director. And I believe these two guests have most of the, what I would call, regulatory slash policy items underneath their practices that could have a direct impact or influence on budget planning. So today we're going to go through a list of items that when we look at things moving forward, we see these as potentially items that could be above and beyond routine reporting, above and beyond the normal things that you might plan for in your annual EHS budget. So that's kind of the nature of the items that we want to discuss. And we want to provide enough information just to give you food for thought on the different things you might incorporate into your budgets, how you incorporate them, and in what amounts. That's going to be really specific. So we probably won't get into some of that, but we'll at least try to provide enough context on each of these to, like I said, just give you some things to chew on as you're thinking ahead to your EHS and sustainability and ESG budgeting items for next year. So with that, we are going to just get right into the meat of it, and we're going to spend time just going through a list and talking at somewhat of a high level. Amy, I'm going to start with you. Uh, We'll start out with some air topics, and I've kind of put these into some distinct buckets, the first of which is National Ambient Air Quality Standards, or NACS, uh, because there's plenty going on there. Tell us about PM2.5, where that stands now. This is a doubles as a regulatory update slash budget planning. But where does that stand now, and what should folks be thinking about going into this year coming up? Yep. Thanks, Colin. So <clears throat> shameless plug for our webinar series. Um, we we felt like this topic was so important to get out there that we actually have put together kind of a three-part webinar series on NAC. So we've done the the basics one. We're going to do one on PM2.5 and, and then another one on ozone. So the PM2.5 NACs is one of the items that EPA declared that they were going to reconsider with the with the change in administration a couple of years ago. Um, so the previous EPA reviewed the PM2.5 NACs and decided not to lower it. The current uh, EPA and the makeup of the Clean Air Act uh, Scientific Advisory Committee has decided that based on um, kind of the body of evidence that's available around PM2.5 health impacts, that the standard should be lowered, both the annual and the daily standard, 
potentially pretty significantly. And so right now, um, the annual standard is 12 micrograms per cubic meter, and we could see a lower annual standard anywhere between 8 and 11. Um, so if we were to look at a map of the United States and kind of um, the different background concentrations of PM2.5 across the United States, the average is about eight. So it would be a really big deal for about half of the country if the PM two and a half National Ambient Air Quality Standard is lowered all the way to eight. Um, so basically you would have no room to model about half the industrial sources in the United States. So um, it may be something to think about putting in your budget next year that when we see the level of the standard and we should see a proposal here coming soon and then a final rule probably late spring of 2023. Um, you may want to invest some time if you haven't already in looking at uh, air dispersion modeling just to see if you had to do modeling for a project or a permit renewal where would your um, kind of pinch points be? Um, there may be some stack testing that you might want to do. Um, a lot of times when we do permitting, we tend to use very conservative emission factors. And if it doesn't, you know, constrain us in our permitting, we kind of move on with life. But um, for PM2.5, it may be something that you want to do some site-specific testing on uh, or just kind of a little bit of sharpening your pencil uh, generally on your PM2.5 emissions inventory. And we'll talk a little bit later about environmental justice policy and cumulative risk and some things like that that may filter into the need to model PM2.5 as well. But before we get to that, let's go to ozone, Amy. A little more geographically specific, I would say, this one. Um, but walk us through the, the redesignations first, and then we'll talk uh, FIP. Okay. So, you know, EPA reviews and states review the uh, ambient monitoring data. And if states or, you know, counties in certain areas aren't meeting their obligations to reduce uh, ambient concentrations, then uh, EPA could redesignate non-attainment areas to a higher or more, more severe level of non-attainment, or they could decide that air quality has degraded in a previous attainment area and designate redesignate that area as non-attainment. So in September, we should see final redesignations for several areas in the U.S., um, namely in Texas and Colorado, a couple of other specific locations. Um, but the effects of moving up a level in severity of ozone non-attainment status mean there are lower thresholds for facility-wide potential emissions that will require permitting. If you do a project, you have to get a higher level of offsets for your emissions. Um, the states may impose more stringent control requirements to try to get the situation in hand. So I think in several of these areas, we're going to see, you know, a lot more sources become subject to permitting um, and then perhaps additional control requirements that may have to be implemented as a result of these redesignations. So again, you know, we talked about emission inventories as part of PM2.5. I think that's also a piece here, kind of getting a better hold on your emissions and then evaluating, you know, does my 
need to have a permit change or, you know, do my requirements to control my emissions change? Thanks, Amy. We've also got out there right now a proposed good neighbor rule, transport, FIP, a couple of different ways to refer to it as. Um, walk us through that and what the implications of that might be from a budgetary standpoint, things that companies need to do, think about. Um, maybe it's a little too early for that, but walk us through where, where you think that stands. Yeah. So with the proposed ozone transport FIP that we saw um, a few months ago, this is EPA's first foray into regulating non-EGUs under a kind of a CASPER-like rule or the cross-state air pollution rule. So for EGUs, they made changes to budgets. They are proposing you know, kind of a sliding scale on budgets. They're proposing a backstop emission rate. Um, so they're, they're basically trying to get people that have controls to run the controls and optimize the controls. So if you're an EGU and you decided that it's more economical for me to buy credits than run my controls, then that strategy may not be one that you can use going forward if EPA finalizes the provisions they propose. And then if you're in the chemical, pulp and paper, iron and steel, or cement industry, um, there's a possibility that EPA finalizes um, new NOx emissions limits for certain of your industrial sources, and you may need to install NOx SIMs. You may need to um, maybe change fuels if you wanted to avoid coverage. You may need to install NOx controls. You know, there, there's a lot more moving pieces to controlling industrial sources of NOx um, than just putting an SCR on a coal-fired EGU. So I think there there will be a lot of questions around the final rule um, unless they improve kind of the lack of clarity they had in the proposal as to what exactly types of industrial sources were covered. And, um, you know, it may also be a strategy to reduce your emissions below, you know, the threshold of coverage if there is some kind of cut off where they say, okay, we're only going to regulate sources that emit more than 100 tons of NOx during ozone season. So I think there will be a lot of things potentially for facilities to look for with this rule. It just kind of depends on how the final rule turns out. So it may be, um, you know, implementing requirements of the rule or, you know, strategizing around reducing emissions so you're not subject to the rule. Yes, this is a keep an eye on it sort of process and potentially some longer term budget issues. Although when you look at having to install SIMs and lead times and things that may need to be done, you've got to work yourself backwards off of those deadlines. So um, definitely something to, to keep a close eye on. And I think for those industries that you mentioned, I believe it's 23 states where 23 to 25 states somewhere in that neighborhood that that where this rule has been geographically defined. So that'd be something to take a look at. Just look where you're at. Look at the states. EPA has some maps up yeah. um, around what states will be affected. Exactly. Yeah. So, okay, Amy, let's move on. Let's, let's get a little industry specific. EPA is very active right now with MACT and NESHAP activity. And um, there's some court cases that influence the way that EPA is needing to look at some of these MAC standards across industries. So maybe start us by 
talking just briefly about the some of the court decisions that have gone on. And then just give us a run through some of the larger industries that EPA is, is active on at the moment. Okay. Um, yeah, there have been many court decisions over the course of several years that have influenced how EPA can structure their, you know, their air toxics rules under the MACT program. Um, I guess the most recent one a couple of years ago um, is referred to as the lean case. Um, and in that court case, the EPA was basically instructed that um, these MACT rules have to address all sources of HAP emissions and all HAPs that are known to be emitted. So if we think about the Boiler MACT, the Boiler MACT doesn't have these um, gaps because we've addressed, you know, the source category is boilers. So the rule does, the major source rule does address uh, all different types of boilers burning all different types of fuels. And we have requirements in the rule that address all the HAPs. Now, we don't have a list of 187 emission limits, but we have different work practices and surrogates such that EPA addressed emissions of all HAPs. Now, if we think about um, the pulp and paper rule uh, for recovery furnaces, and lime kilns in the chemical recovery area, EPA for existing sources only set limits for particulate matter. But if you think about combustion sources, um, you might also be getting acid gas emissions. You might be getting a small amount of uh, organic HAP emissions. It's possible you're going to get dioxin furan emissions. And so um, the issues with that rule and several of the other air toxics rules that EPA is working on is EPA may have only set emission limits or, or work practice standards for the biggest sources of HAP emissions, and now they are being instructed or have been instructed by the court to address all sources of HAPs that are part of the affected source and all HAPs known to be emitted. So we're seeing a lot of activity across several um, different sectors as a result of that lean decision. And then also um, as a result of petitions for reconsideration on other kind of non-lean related issues, um, like can EPA set you know, standards and give people an exemption um, due to a force majeure event, for example. Um, how does can EPA treat um, maintenance activities? How does EPA treat emissions during startup and shutdown? So, you know, any anywhere from, you know, tire manufacturing to the miscellaneous organic niche app to ethylene, um, you know, many of these standards are expected to come out here over the next several months with with revisions. And EPA has a lot of court order deadlines, so they're rushing to collect information and then, you know, figure out how to how to deal with these legal issues that they've been given. Yeah, thanks, Amy. That's a good summary. You know, I think that I keep telling folks just if you've got MAC standards that you're subject to, Keep track of them. Know who your EPA points of contact are. Look at where it is in the risk and technology review process and just really understand that. I think there's a couple coming up, like in pulp and paper, that folks might expect to have to do some testing and spend some time responding to information collection requests. So you got to be aware of those things. Um, specifically, boiler back, Amy, 
Can you just walk through real quick? Because that's one that's actually out there in terms of a new final rule that has a three-year window. Just give us a yep. quick rundown of that one. And is is the universe of sources that will have to change something or do something, how big is that universe or how is that sort of mm-hmm. bounded? So it's about a $100 million universe. <laughs> That's kind of the estimate on the impacts of, of final boiler MAC rule number five. Yes, we have seen a final boiler MAC rule five times now. Um, and we're not done. So um, EPA did recently finalize a revised boiler MAC. It has not been uh, in the Federal Register at the time of this recording. Um, last I knew, EPA was working out some formatting issues with the Office of Federal Register. Um, but when we see that published, all boilers, both existing and new, and new at this point was built in June of 2010, um, will have three years to comply with the new emission limits. And so, EP, this final rule was as also as a result of a court case. Um, and the big piece of that court case was the court telling EPA that they developed a lot of the emission limits for uh, 30-some source categories improperly, because the way that they developed the emission limits did not match how they defined a subcategory. Um, so, there are more than 20 emission limits that change in this final rule. Three of them are even more stringent than proposed. And it's really biomass boilers that seem to be hit the hardest. The most significant changes are in some of these biomass subcategories. And then if you burn solid fuel, they were there were kind of you know smaller changes in the mercury and HCL limits. So um, you might want to think about you know, stack testing versus fuel analysis, which which compliance option should I pick now that I'm I'm getting squeezed a little bit on my emission limit? Um, and, you know, I, I had mentioned a minute ago that this is not our final boiler mac. You know, we had we've had all this big round of risk and technology reviews. We haven't had an RTR on boiler mac because it seems like we can't finish the original rule. Um, but even on these rules that we've had all these risk and technology reviews, EPA is still obligated by the Clean Air Act to do a just the technology review part every eight years. And then for some of these rules, um, like the HON, if they are concerned about certain chemicals where an IRIS review has resulted in a more stringent um, risk factor like ethylene oxide, they may do certain parts of the risk analysis over and then kind of make make requirements for emission sources like those that are um, dealing with ethylene oxide a little more stringent in the next technology review. So, you know, even though we have final RTR rules, there, there still will be TR rules that could change in the future. Thanks, Amy. One more thing to cover with you. Environmental justice. We know it's a big priority of the federal administration. Uh, There's two buckets I want to hit here. One, I know we're doing a lot of tracking locally with what states are doing. So perhaps you could fill folks in about some of the things they might want to plan for around some of their capital projects that they've got coming up next year. And then second, I want to talk a little bit more about maybe some federal rulemaking, but let's start at the local level. What should folks be thinking about there? Sure. So as a result of EPA having this as a top priority in their strategic plan, the the states are hearing loud and clear 
from the administration that they have to think about environmental justice as they are issuing permits. Um, so, so different states have different levels of consideration of environmental justice in their process. So here in North Carolina, for example, um, certain types of major permit applications go through what is called enhanced public participation. Um, so there might be, you know, additional outreach targeted to nearby communities that could be environmental justice or overburdened. This is a policy, not not a rule, um, but it can add time to your uh, permitting process. Um, in New Jersey, they are implementing a uh, executive order and an EJ rule. Um, I don't think the rule is final yet, but they are implementing it uh, at the agency because this is very important um, to their state's administration. And so, you know, if you want your permit renewed or want to change to your permit and you are um, impacting an overburdened community that's adjacent to your facility, um, there are going to be more steps to your process, more evaluations, and potentially um, some mitigation of your emissions there. One of the things that you might want to think about for the budget next year is how do I improve my um, relationship with the communities around my facility? How can I do some more outreach? How can I, you know, inform them in kind of, you know, plain language around what, what goes on at my facility? Um, maybe think about looking at doing some kind of risk analysis. Um, there are all these websites out there, uh, different states and EPA websites that will give you, you know, an EJ index or an air toxics, you know, risk estimate that's at a very high screening level um, or, you know, different percentiles of, you know, the data, how your data about your facility ranks in EPA databases. But if the public just looks at those websites and, and takes that, you know, by itself, you know, again, all the, a lot of the emissions information is based on, you know, factors, maybe um, the air toxics evaluation that EPA does um, as a very high level screen. So you may want to look at the websites um, that contain information about your facility and think about, okay, if, if this website, shows potentially a high risk for my facility, could I do my own uh, risk analysis with, you know, better data, better dispersion parameters? You know, you you have more information about what, how your site is configured than, than EPA does. Can you develop a better answer that you can then, you know, com communicate to the, to the folks that are around your facility? Yeah, thanks, Amy. And just as a general rule, moving forward, no matter how routine the permitting action might seem, uh, even if it's a routine operating permit renewal, just building some extra time into that to respond to comments and things like that is, is something you want to consider. So take Definitely. a look at that Title V renewal. You know, do you have one coming up or an operating permit renewal, I should say, coming up this year? Um, Amy, walk through from a federal perspective. You know, I've heard about cumulative risk rulemaking and things like that. That's something that seems like it's being discussed uh, within EPA. 
Do you know where that stands? And is that something that folks should be thinking about for near-term budgeting? Um, as part of EPA's, you know, EJ activities, they really want to figure out how to address cumulative impacts. So say you have, you know, five facilities that might be um, sort of on different sides of one neighborhood, you know, they all, assuming they're owned by different entities, they all, you know, do their permitting and their emissions evaluations separately. Is there a way to identify, you know, is that community subject to too much cumulative impact from those five facilities around them? And EPA is really struggling with how to address that. So they've been promising some guidance um, since the beginning of the administration, but we have really yet to see it. Um, the one thing we did see recently is the administrator signed some proposed changes to the risk management plan rule, and they are incorporating some extra requirements for chemical plants that are within a certain distance of each other um, to attempt to mitigate you know, potential, you know, impacts of accidents on communities or on a plant that is next to you. All right. Thanks, Amy. Heather, let's go to you. We've got a couple other budget items to discuss. Tell me about facility response plan rulemaking, proposed rulemaking that EPA has out right now. Sure. What, what can folks do to, to kind of plan for this? Is there things that folks could do to plan ahead knowing this might drag out? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you as you touched on here, EPA proposed under the Clean Water Act a hazardous substance worst case discharge planning rule. That's the official name they gave it. That was back in March of this year. Um, it basically requires facilities located near navigable waters that store designated amounts of defined hazardous chemicals um, perform worst case discharge evaluations. Um, basically, it, it, it'll determine whether or not they would require a plan or a facility response plan for responding to a maximum extent practicable to a worst case discharge. Um, and then further on, create a substantial threat of such to um, of discharge of a hazardous substance. Um, so you can kind of think about this as an extension of an SPCC plan, um, but now covering chemicals, not just oil storage. And some initial steps that facilities can do while we're waiting for the, the rule to be actually promulgated and put on the docket um, would be to perform some initial uh, hazardous chemical evaluations. Um, if you can look at your public receptors, if you could look at um, where they sit on, along the line of, of the navigable waters, um, and actually also look at whether or not they, um, they qualify for performing this. So there's, there's some threshold triggers. Um, if they store chemicals above 10,000 times the reportable quantity, um, and then of course, if they've had some, some reportable quantity releases to water within the last five years, um, or if they've had a worst case discharge that would cause injury to fish, wildlife, sensitive environments, um, some of those sub qualifiers would would automatically put them under this under this rule. Thanks, Heather. So we'll keep track of that. That'll be an interesting one to see. It's quite an quite an expansion. Feels like the ozone FIP. Uh, like there's just a bunch of new stuff going on here with with facility response plans. 
there, there's also something else I've noticed this year on a state level uh, where there's in certain states been a tremendous amount of stormwater related activity that facilities have had to undergo. I was hoping you could walk through the driver behind some of that and um, give folks some information where they might consider what might be going on for them locally uh, on the stormwater front, if there's something they need to do to uh, make changes and revisions to their existing plans and permits. Sure, sure. Um, well, really what we're seeing is the expiration of the the state industrial stormwater general um, stormwater permits, which um, also called the National Pollutant Discharge Elimination System permits. Um, we're seeing these expirations occur throughout the Southeast, particularly Georgia, Alabama, South Carolina, Tennessee. Uh, we've also seen, um, an, well, Pennsylvania's is about to expire, Vermont just expired, and then Colorado as well. Um, in some of these states, we're actually not seeing any significant changes to the new permits being issued. For instance, in Alabama, it seems to be a very straightforward renewal process for industries that are located in that state. Um, however, in other states, we're seeing some significant changes. For instance, in Colorado, uh, we're seeing that there'll be some new uh, monitoring requirements, particularly around metals, um, and PFAS is starting to be incorporated as well. Um, actually, specifically in Colorado, PFAS will no longer be allowed to be discharged. Um, and then in Pennsylvania, um, uh, more additional monitoring requirements. Um, it's a little bit more inclusive. It goes beyond metals, includes total nitrogen, phosphorus, oil and grease, uh, COD, which is chemical oxygen demand, and then total suspended solids. Um, so it's really just important to, to know when your permit is about to expire. Um, you have 90 days before your permit expires in um, to notify the state that you will be renewing to submit your notice of intent or NOI. Um, there's also a requirement to review your existing stormwater pollution prevention plan. And in some instances, those plans might need to be updated. Um, there might need to be a thorough review of your impervious services. If anything's significantly changed around your, your facility, um, then those plans will need to be updated. So that can have an impact in the long term, because these permits, um, the duration of the permits are for five years. Um, so you need to really look at what that cost is going to be for um, for one year to the next. Thanks, Heather. So definitely get to know your state stormwater folks, too. Uh, stay in touch with them as some of these things change. Um, Heather, one final one for you. And Amy, feel free to jump in. TRI is sort of a multimedia uh, sort of topic. But... Um, tell us a little bit about PFAS, TRI, PFAS de minimis thresholds, things like that. What do folks need to be considering uh, going into 2023 around that? Yeah, well, PFAS has become one of those those dirty acronyms, um, one of those forever chemicals. Um, there's been a lot of activity around PFAS, um, and we're seeing, obviously, it being spread across a lot of the different regulatory programs under EPA, um, but specifically under TRI, um, there's been an, a de minimis level and a de minimis exemption level that's that's allowed facilities to basically underreport their their actual pounds of releases to the environment. Um, and so EPA's proposed a rule to remove that exemption for de minimis releases. Um, so with the removal of that, it's going to um, it's going to really be more transparent around 
the number of facilities that handle the amount of PFOS and give give more information around how much PFOS is actually being released into the environment. Um, right now, there's over 170 PFOS that are required to be reported under TRI. Um, but of course, the agency is under pressure to continue to add more PFAS because there are thousands of them. Um, and then also just, just some, some other clarity around this. Um, the agency did perform um, an analysis that showed 38 facilities managing PFAS waste and releases of chemicals um, that handled greater than 800,000 pounds um, in, I think it was 2020, actually only reported having 9,000 pounds of releases. Um, so again, removing this de minimis level will give EPA and um, a little bit more teeth into how they can better manage these these PFAS releases into the environment. Yeah. So for TRI moving forward, think about that, you know, in terms of preparation and how many stakeholders you'll have to get involved in that process. Go ahead, Amy. Yeah. I think one more thing from an air emissions point of view is EPA is, has indicated some desire to go stack test some different sources of air emissions of PFAS than we've historically uh, been concerned about. Um, landfill gas, um, sewage sludge incinerators. So, you know, we we don't have a lot of air emissions information on PFAS, but that could change if EPA starts, you know, targeting specific source categories to, to go measure their PFAS emissions. Appreciate that, Amy. All right. So we covered a number of air and broad EHS related items there. I hope that was helpful. Just thinking about a few other things that are in the hopper and Amy and Heather chime in on any of these at any point. Um, but when I look at the ESG and sustainability side of things, we have the SEC proposed rulemaking out there that would um, mandate carbon disclosures for public companies. I think we can all see as more and more public companies are disclosing their carbon emissions more specifically, that they will have the expectation that their suppliers and other vendors do the same, um, even if those suppliers and other vendors are private organizations. So I think that SEC rulemaking will really broaden out the amount and formality of carbon disclosure. So I think there's there's something there going into next year around carbon and emissions and being comfortable with them and making sure that uh, as an organization that you're utilizing the correct data factors, that that's all being pulled together in a way where there's good quality checks on it and it's very auditable uh, at the back end. So I think there's potentially some some budget and effort there to put together some of the digital tools and put the processes in place that that give some organizational confidence around that data. So that's a rule certainly that we're tracking. And then speaking of digital tools, I mean, we talked about a number of things today related to transparency, uh, public involvement in the permitting process and, and how we see that increasing. So I think there's a there's an increasing benefit to being able to utilize your your available EHS and sustainability data in the best way possible. So we certainly see companies out there utilizing more digital tools to more efficiently pull data together, be able to compare it, be able to benchmark against it, you know, in terms of competitors, uh, being able to automate reporting, being able to give better eyes on the data to optimize operations. 
you know, help with turnover, right? As we have more and more turnover across different industries, it helps to have data and information better documented, you know, to help new folks as they come in. So um, certainly there's a consideration with everything that we see going on out there of maybe there's a, a way to digitally enable different EHS um, functions, you know, within your organization. So I think that's not necessarily a, a firm regulatory or policy driver, but it's more just a broad uh, general consideration to make as you're looking at your plans for next year. So I think that's all I have. Amy and Heather, is there anything from your perspective that we did not cover um, or anything else you want to add to the conversation to help folks with their budgeting thought process? No, I think we've kind of hit the high points. And as always, you know, keep keep track of our articles that we're writing and, and we'll try to, you know, put out information to help you figure out what you need to be paying attention to next year and in the future. All right. Thanks so much for joining me today. As for our listeners, I hope this was a, a helpful look ahead into 2023 and some budget planning. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you'll join us next time. You've been listening to For the Record Behind the Scenes Insider Podcast with Colin McCall. Remember to sign up for our complimentary For the Record email newsletter to get weekly news and articles on a variety of timely EHS issues. The content heard on this podcast is not intended to replace an evaluation of the specific projects and regulations that you are encountering at your company. 